God of the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So when I read this parable of the laborers in the vineyard, there's a memory that floods my mind. When I lived in Tucson, Arizona, one of the organizations that I volunteered with was the Southside Worker Center. This was run by a Presbyterian church, and the goal of the center was to provide a safe place for day laborers to wait for employment and to negotiate a just wage with potential employers. And so volunteers, uh, what we did uh, primarily were to walk around to provide coffee and bread to the men who were waiting, um, gathered, hoping for a job. Some of the volunteers did administrative tasks, but really our main job was to keep our eyes open because many of the men who were gathered there did not have papers to be in the U.S. Some did, but we didn't ask questions. But they were vulnerable, and that meant that we were vulnerable too. So whenever a prospective employer would drive up, it always amazed me how all of the men would crowd around the vehicle and there would be a verbal exchange in Spanish and then a few lucky ones would climb into the truck and drive away. The rest of the crowd would go back to milling around the parking lot, kind of dispersing until another vehicle pulled up and then again, it was like that magnet effect. Now we got there really early. It must have been 5.30 or 6 in the morning and we finished by about 7.30 or 8. By that time, Nobody else was coming to hire. If they wanted some workers that day, they'd already been there. And so the volunteers left, the, the, any, any guys that were left also left. And if an employer had come at noon, there wouldn't have been anyone there to hire. You know, this last parable in our series of puzzling stories, it is not Jesus' last parable. It's just the last one that we're going to talk about. But it's, it's an important one about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus compares the kingdom of God to the landowner who goes out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. Now, in Greek, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is Basileia to Feu. So earlier in this series, we talked about Marie Sassidias' use of kingdom rather than kingdom as a way to tap into the dimensions of the word and indicate that we're all family, right? That, that we are all kin to one another and that we are seeking to create this world where all have enough. And yet for me, in this particular parable, the way that Basileia Tufeu is used invites us to think about the economical dimensions of the world. And I think kingdom, in this case, is a better fit than kingdom. So this is describing the reign of God, the world that's organized and governed by God, as God intended it to be, and by the principles that God sets forth. And so it certainly has a dimension of heavenly and otherworldly implications, but it also has implications for life here and now. And the implications for life here and now are economic, much like you would have in a kingdom of the world. So before we look at this parable more closely, I want to share a modern-day story that's from a few years back. You all may remember this story. It is the story of the Market Basket supermarket chain in Massachusetts. How many people have heard of this chain? A few? Oh, we have two lone people. I had never heard of it before either, and I thought, where have I been living with my head stuck in the sand? This is a really interesting story. 
And it's not a perfect fit with the parable, but it provides some food for thought when we match it up with this parable. And so here's a little bit of an introduction to it, and then I have a, a news clip to watch. So it's a family business, Market Basket, and it's had its share of drama over the years of its existence. But uh, their CEO was Arthur T, the initial is very important, Arthur T um, Dimalis. He was a very wealthy man, I probably mispronounced the name, but he was a very wealthy man. He, he made a lot of money off of the stores, don't get me wrong. But he also treated the workers more fairly than most any other chain in the United States. So he, he didn't pay them you know, an extravagant amount, but he did pay them a little bit more than most other chains. They had steady schedules, they had time off, they had healthcare benefits, and the prices in the stores were low because most of the stores were located in modest income neighborhoods. And yet, Arthur T. still made money for himself, for his family, for the stockholders in the company. For example, according to Forbes, they made an estimated $217 million in earnings on $4 billion in revenue in 2013. They're probably doing okay, right? I think so. However, some of the family members and board members of the company thought they could be earning more. And so, in 2014, Arthur T. was fired, and his cousin, Arthur S., took over the company. He started changing the profit-sharing policies to give less to the local store managers and more to the board members and stockholders. And so, we're going to watch a news clip um, that tells a little bit about what happened. This is a story from WCBB Channel 5 in Boston, and it is from back in uh, 2014 when this was happening. So. Not backing down, another day of employee unrest and rallies throughout the market basket supermarket chain as they try to get their former boss reinstated as CEO. Today, workers at the Chelsea market basket are even going so far as to ask people at the door to turn around and not shop. New Center 5's Jim Loke is there live with the latest for us. Jim? Pretty extraordinary to hear that, Eric, and you can see at this new time a parking lot that's normally filled, very sparse with cars, and they're at it again today. Today, the rallies are much smaller, but they're still out there, protesting the firing of Arthur T. DeMolis and a number of senior employees at each of the 71 market baskets, from the petitions in Tuxbury to the cars carrying a silent message in Lowell, and the empty carriage racks with plenty of parking available in Burlington. The produce sections inside remain sparse, but customers, they're on board. I wouldn't have my house, my first house, if it wasn't for him, giving me a break in 68 to 74. These guys are great. Just keep working, keep working at keep working the lines, guys. And the employees are so adamant the customers go elsewhere. Now inside the store, they're posting receipts for competing grocery stores. Their message, shop elsewhere, at least for now. And we don't want things to change. And the only way that things can stay the same is with Arthur T. DeMolis. Arthur T. DeMolis has responded, telling News Center 5, quote, This is not about me. It's about the people who have proven their dedication over many years and should not have lost their jobs. And as for the calls by Market Basket employees for customers to boycott their own stores? People might think it's crazy, but um, we're doing it to make a statement, to take a stand. Stay strong with everybody and uh, do, the, do the best we can do to bring out the tea bag. And we have reached out to Market Basket's current management team for comment. They have not responded to our request. So, what happened, right? The workers started
started protesting with all that USAO. They encouraged all their uh, customers to shop somebody somewhere else. The stores that tried to remain open, they couldn't do it because nobody was coming to work and nobody was coming to shop. So, weeks later, Arthur T. bought the company back from his cousins and the board members, and subsequently, cheering workers and consumers returned to the store. Now, he had to pay quite a bit of money, so this cost a lot. I think uh, in, in the days that followed, there was some you know, disequilibrium. And yet, I think it's a fascinating uh, modern-day, real-life story to match up with this parable of the workers in the vineyard. Um, and then when we couple that back with this idea of day laborers, and so as we get into a little bit of exegesis on the scripture, I want to invite you simply to have those two stories in your mind so we might hear this uh, biblical parable with new ears. So in the parable, the landowner seeks out the laborers for the vineyard at a really early hour, probably 6 a.m., and they agree on that daily wage, which would have been um, one denarius. So it's not necessarily generous, but it is adequate for a day's work. It plays by the rules of the kingdom of the world. What is not normal is that it is the landowner himself who is negotiating and hiring the laborers. Normally, it would have been a manager doing that work. And so I think already at the very beginning of this parable, we're starting to be pulled toward the kingdom of God. Now, the landowner continues to act in ways that are different than the kingdom of the world. He keeps going back to the day labor center, hiring more workers at 9, at noon, at 3, and then even at 5 p.m., just one hour before they are to quit working. And each time he hires more workers, he agrees to pay them what is right. Now, it's really not clear if an actual amount is agreed, is agreed to, the text doesn't say. But at the end of the day, there are more twists in the story. Because in the kingdom of the world, the manager would pay the workers without any counsel from the landowner. After all, the objective was already known, and that was to make as much money as possible for the landowner. So obviously, you should pay the workers according to the time that they actually worked. So if 12 hours worked earns one denarius, or a day's wage, then one hour of work should earn one-twelfth of a denarius, a twelfth of a day's wage. So, the other thing that typically happened was the ones who started working first were paid first, and then they left. They took their money, and they got out of there. They didn't know what the people who were hired last were paid. But in this story, the landowner advises the manager to pay the workers in the reverse order, starting with those who began working last. So I just want you to imagine this, right? You've been working all day in the vineyard. Let's say we're among the first workers. And we're thinking, we're done, we're getting a day's wage, and we're out of here. And then we're told to stand in line behind all the people who started working later than us. And then we see that they're getting the same thing that we're promised. What hope is starting to rise in our hearts? We're going to get more, right? Surely we're going to get more. But what happens? The landowner pays them all the same thing. And so not only do the ones who started working first have to wait for their payment, but they observe 
everyone else getting exactly what they were promised to earn as well. You know, I think this is a reversal on so many uh, dimensions. The, the world as they know it is turned upside down. Because if the landowner had a board of directors for business, you could just hear them yelling out, no way, uh-uh, this is a, not a good business plan at all. You can't pay the same wage for those who worked an hour and those who worked all day, because we'll never make any money if you do that. And second, the workers themselves, right, are speaking up. Wait a second, this is not fair. We worked all day, they only worked an hour. How can you pay all of us the same? Now, some scholars say that this story was originally meant to contrast the reward intended for the Jews that was given in equal measure to the Gentiles. Now, the Jews, right, according to what we understand, were God's chosen children first, and for centuries they had received this promise of a reward for their favored position. They're like the first workers selected for the work in the vineyard. And they knew what they were working for. They worked all day long. And then the Gentiles came into the picture later, much later. And they had only worked in God's vineyard for a few hours, so it wasn't fair for them to be paid the same thing or for them to get the same reward. Now, I think this particular framework is helpful, but it's also a little bit dangerous. Because I think for me, when we start reading the parable this way, we are so likely to put ourselves in the place of those who started working last. After all, most of us are Gentiles, right? We don't come from a Jewish background or a Jewish heritage, so we're the ones who are grafted into the kingdom because of Jesus. And yet, I think if Jesus were to retell the parable today, I'm pretty sure the church people might be the ones who are compared to the workers who were selected first. I mean, this is what would turn our world upside down. That we've been laboring for a while and we are tired, and by golly, we want our reward, and we're not always sure that those new Christians who just started working in the kingdom should get the same thing as us. So, this parable is bookended by a short saying about the order of the kingdom of God. And Dr. Alice McKenzie likes to say that the kingdom of God disrupts business as usual. I think we see that in this short verse. The verse right before this parable in chapter 19.30 says, But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then the verse that closes this parable in chapter 20.16 says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So this is not business as usual. I mean, first of all, in a very real, tangible way, the landowner reverses the expectations by paying the ones who started working last first, and the ones who started working first last. Not only that, but surely at some point the landowner actually had enough workers for the vineyard. And yet the landowner valued people enough to give them the dignity of work and the opportunity to earn a whole day's the landowner is unreasonably generous. In fact, in verse 15, the landowner says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? 
You know, perhaps this is true in the sense of a heavenly reward, but I think it makes more sense to us when we think about it in the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, could we ask this question to the family and board members of the Market Basket supermarket? Are you envious because Arthur T. is generous? Could we ask this question to those who are opposed to immigration policies that provide a path to education and work for dreamers or other immigrants? Are you envious because this legislation is generous? Could we ask this question of ourselves? When we covet something someone else has, whether it's a bigger car or a nicer house, or perhaps an even more poignant question is, is when we direct it toward us and, and don't refer to anything material. Rather, are we envious of the relationship a friend has with their parent? Are, are we envious of the amazing life that everyone else on Facebook is living? <laughs> In other words, are we envious because God is generous? You know, I think it is so easy for envy to enter our hearts and to just make itself at home. And the Basileia to Feu, the kingdom of God, invites us to take that long, deep look within, but also to consider how that influences our actions in the world. Because the kingdom of heaven is not business as usual. The kingdom of heaven is that the first will be last and the last will be first. It's about a God who values people over profit. The kingdom of heaven is about a God who values people's dignity over a handout. The kingdom of heaven is about a God who gives generously because it's possible. Because it's possible. The kingdom of God, the Basileia to Theo, turns the expected order of things upside down and then invites us to do the same. That in, in so many senses, Jesus does justice and not fairness. And it ends up looking like extravagant grace and generosity, which surprises even us. And so, what is the reward in the kingdom of God? The first will be last, and the last will be first. And all of us, all of us, will have our daily bread. Thanks be to God.